Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on February 16th, 2016, and is titled The Industries of the Future, and features Alec Ross, former senior advisor of innovation at the U.S. State Department and author of The Industries of the Future, Rachel Hout, managing director of 1776, and Kevin Bankston, director of the Open Technology Institute at New America. I figure we would start at the beginning. Often a book's first line is a good window into where it is going and the style of the book and the tone of the book and the purpose of the book. And so I wanted to read the first line of Alex's book uh, because it introduces a theme that really pervades the rest of the book. But it's somewhat unexpected. It's 3 a.m. and I'm mopping up whiskey-smelling puke after a country music concert in Charleston, West Virginia. Not how you expected the book to start, was it? Um, Alec, why did you choose to start that very, uh, very uh, um, evocative uh, place and time? Yeah, so I, I started it with that sentence over my publisher's objection, but at my insistence. Well, first of all, thank you all for coming out this evening. Thank you, New America and Civic Hall for hosting. Thank you, Rachel, whose work I've so... Uh, respected and cheer, cheer led, cheerleaded for uh, over the past many years. And thank you all for coming out this evening. The reason I started the book that way is it's, it's an image from when I was working as a midnight janitor in West Virginia during college. You know, a lot of my buddies who went to fancy college like mine, you know, spent their summers at unpaid internships at law firms or investment banks. So their parents would get them an apartment in D.C. and they'd work on a congressional staff. Uh, but growing up in West Virginia as a public school kid, I had to, when I went home for the summer, I had to actually make money. And in order to do that in the face of a foundering economy, the jobs I had were working on a beer truck and working as a midnight janitor. And the inspiration for writing this book really came from, you know, an upbringing uh, working living and working as sort of working class West Virginian and then after leaving college as a public school teacher in Baltimore where I've been really lucky, you know, since the days of working as a midnight janitor. I've had a pretty good 20-year run um, where I may, where that feels like it's very much a part of who I am, but it's also very much a part of my history as opposed to my present in many respects. So I wrote this book recognizing that as difficult as the last stage of globalization was, as difficult as the last waves of innovation were for large swaths of Americans and large swaths of people around the globe, in anticipating the industries of the future and anticipating the changes that are to come over the next 10 or 15 years, what I wanted to do was, was light a little path so that uh, people who grew up in communities like the one that I did in West Virginia or ones like I taught in in Baltimore could get some sense of what's to come so they could prepare themselves, prepare their kids, prepare their grandkids for a world that's only going to have far greater levels of change. And, you know, this is most of my time is spent now with what I would call, not pejoratively, but sort of coastal elites, people who have done extremely well in government, academia, or business. And I'm trying to take the conversations that they have about the forces that are shaping our future and bringing that to a broader audience. 
So, so those guys that you worked with uh, as a janitor, you know, they were working that job because automation had taken away coal jobs, globalization had taken away jobs at the chemical plant. The industries you're about to talk about, um, that you do talk about in your book, are going to cause similar, maybe even greater shifts in, in the way the economy and the job market work. Um, one of the big ones is going to be robots. And we often joke about killer robots. It sounds like maybe we ought to be talking seriously about job killer robots. Um, but uh, the story with robots starts in Japan. What's happening in Japan? So in in short, I think the cartoons and robots of the nineteen of the movies and cartoons of the nineteen seventies are going to be the reality of the twenty twenties. I think the combination of mapping belief space, which is a mathematical breakthrough that allows robots to do things that were historically difficult tasks for them, like grasping. Grasping might seem uh, like a pretty straightforward task, but it's actually very complex to model out mathematically and algorithmically. Breakthroughs in, in mapping belief space, which are allowing robots to go from being dominantly 2D to 3D devices, combined with, combined with cloud robotics, I think is going to have a huge impact on labor. So if, if C-3PO walked in here right now, um, if the movie version of C-3PO walked into Civic Hall and interrupted us right now, he would sort of look up and go, oh my, excuse me. You know, go find and take a seat. Uh, what would be happening as a practical matter is that there would be an enormous amount of very powerful hardware and software whirring in that gold gleaming body. Uh, in reality, in the 2020s, where C3PO will be a cloud connected device, he could actually be a relatively lightweight, dumb device. But so long as he pings the cloud, he can draw from sort of the hive mind that is there which will give him instructions, excuse yourself, excuse yourself in English, and go find a seat. And so what's happening as, as the ability, uh, as artificial intelligence-enabled robots grow more powerful, they're doing tasks that would have once been reserved only for humans. And so the, in the example that you're asking about from Japan, what, what we're seeing a rise of is elder care robots. So Japan actually has the, the oldest population on planet Earth on a per capita basis. You know, the average life expectancy is in the 80s and it's growing older. And because of relatively restrictive immigration policies and, and low birth rates, there literally are not enough young Japanese people to take care of the aging grandparents. And so Honda and Toyota, yes, the car companies, have developed robots that do things like lift grandparents out of bed, put them back in bed, help them with baths, even play the violin to entertain them. Uh, so it's, it's pretty fascinating, some of what's happening there. Things that would be very, I think, difficult for us to accept culturally, but because of Shinto and other such things are, are getting a, a quick foothold there. I thought that was really interesting in the book when you mentioned that an animist culture might be more comfortable with robots than a culture like ours that's been raised on pop culture about evil robots and Skynet and whatnot. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, in the startup community or at the civic level, what are you seeing in terms of automation like like what Alex was describing? Absolutely. And it's also great to be here. And I always will recall, Alec was one of the first people when I first joined the Bloomberg administration as chief digital officer, reached out, said, how can I help? Um, have always appreciated that. And it's exciting to be here and offer some of the on-the-ground examples and also uh, local government examples of how 
the world is interpreting all of these changes. So if it's not too much to stretch the definition of robotics, but with, you know, cloud robotics, internet of things, and smart cities, I think that's probably a lot of the exposure that I've had and I've also seen in the New York City community, even here here at Civic Hall. There are, there are mapping startups like CardoDB. There are um, uh, sensor startups like PlaceMeter that count uh, the amount of human traffic that's walking through an area. And when you apply some of those things to government, they have really interesting potential uh, uses that can help to make government more efficient. And what's always been interesting in government is the potential for this type of Internet of Things and robotics to make the cities and the states that we live in more efficient. So governments control a lot of infrastructure, whether you're talking about the subways or all the streetlights. And if all of that had sensors and if all of that could perhaps even be self-repairing through robotics or, or through drones, they're doing experiments in, in Amsterdam where the street light will tell some kind of central computer when it's out and then the drone will go over and fix it. There's, there's a, a lot of excitement about, wow, we could have so much, uh, so many cost savings. It could be so much more efficient. These things could be solved, you know, before they become a, a big problem. And there are issues like this uh, around, you know, everything from fixing uh, potholes uh, by, you know, using sensors in cars as they go over these, uh, go over um, streets to see what happens uh, in, in your, that can be found in your smartphone. Um, but it does create other issues of what happens to the labor force. And that's a big question for government too. So as exciting as these opportunities are, you are always brought back to the reality of this is, these are often very, you know, well-paying jobs. Uh, they're with a lot of job security that employ thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. So what happens, uh, what happens with those changes? So um, it's, 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 it creates a lot of questions, I think, certainly in government. And having worked in, um, for two administrations that are very pro-innovation future, um, it certainly comes up, whether, whether you're talking about sensors for fixing infrastructure or potentially even things like self-driving buses. If we know they're so much safer, um, and if the public perception can embrace that as well, well, what happens to the people who used to drive the buses? Well, we'll talk more about the the winners and the losers when it when it comes to the industries of the future. But since you mentioned Internet of Things, we talked about going in the order of the industries in the book. But I'll jump around a little bit. Since you mentioned Internet of Things, that raises the issue of cybersecurity, which is concerning when it's our laptops. It's even more concerning when it's the things we're wearing, or it's our homes, or our cars, or the robots that are caring for our parents. Um, which also makes it a growth industry. So, Alec, what did what did your uh, research show on cybersecurity as an industry of the future? Yeah, so the the book is an uh, is a net optimistic book. Um, this is the one area which is a little bit darker, and I do think most books written about you know quote unquote the future and future technology tend to be a lot. You know, they tend to either be sort of triumphalist cyber utopian or bedwetting dystopian. Um, and I, you know, I think of myself as this was a good mix. I, good like, mix. I, I'm a realistic idealist, and I do think that life is much more in the middle. I mean, it's not, you know, we we are not all going to live to be 175 years old and happy until the end, and we're all not, you know, we ought not all curl into the fetal position. Uh, in the case, though, of cybersecurity, this is an area where I take a fairly dark view, and it's probably because of the amount of time I spent in that charming windowless room that is the White House Situation Room. Um, witnessing 
that which we averted. Uh, I do think that the weaponization of code is the most significant development in conflict since the weaponization of fissile material. Uh, The difference being that the creation of a nuclear arm requires access to the scarcest of scarce scientific talents and transuranium elements, whereas the development or or adaption of malware has a far lower barrier to entry. And and what's interesting, what I'm beginning to see, I mean, there are basically three kinds of cyber attacks. There are confidentiality attacks, uh, availability attacks, and integrity attacks. A confidentiality attack is an attack where somebody gets illicit access to your data. An availability attack is somebody basically overwhelming a site with traffic to make a site unavailable, like a DDoS attack. An integrity attack is the most malignant form of cyber attack, where above and beyond getting illicit access to your networks and to your systems, data is altered and or systems are broken. Now, these kinds of attacks tend to be developed with malware that historically only the most powerful nation states Uh, are able to construct. Uh, But the problem is that unlike a bullet, after you've shot a bullet, you can't reshoot that bullet. After you've pulled the pin out of a grenade and the grenade has exploded, it can't be reused. But malware is different. And so you can spend $100 million with 500 of the world's great computer scientists developing a very powerful piece of malware. And as long as it's captured... It can be repurposed and then used elsewhere. And so this is, I I think that there's very clear evidence that this is happening. And so capabilities that have historically been reserved to the Chinese, the Israeli, the American, and the British governments, I increasingly see being um, adapted by non-state-based actors or or state-based actors that historically don't have the capacity that sort of the big four or big five in this domain do. So I do take a dark view here, though from an investment perspective, it's great. You know, <laughs> it's a growth industry. Or a job job opportunity perspective. All, right. Although you, you close that chapter on a, on a, on a different pessimistic note, um, going back to the theme of winners and losers, which I'm going to keep coming back to, uh, that there's this growth industry of cybersecurity firms but ultimately, their primary lookout is going to be governments and, and large companies, not individuals and small businesses. Um, and we saw a similar theme. I saw a similar theme in your chapter on genomics and the future of life sciences, where it seems like, and you'll have to explain this phrase, the blueberry billionaires are the ones who are going to get the first uh, taste of, of 21st century health. So, I mean, in general, with the, with the, the industries of the future, a trend that I tend to see is that the well-being is going to tend to benefit the wealthy and the Western first before trickling to middle classes and then to other parts of the globe. So, you know, to, to Kevin's point about, um, about malware, you know, my, the point I was making, the point I make in the book is that if you think about defense, if you think about an air defense system, The purpose of having an air defense system is to protect all of the people, right? It's not the purpose of having an anti-missile defense system is not just to protect government or business. It's to protect America, protect all of us. But what's interesting is that within the development of the within the development of cybersecurity tools, the most powerful tools are being developed to protect government and large enterprises, and that does very little for small and medium-sized businesses or for individuals. And so I do think that there's an asymmetry in terms of the development of cyber defenses, where 
again, in this case, the wealthy and the powerful benefit before the small and the medium size and, and consumers. To your question about the life sciences, uh, I have a chapter about the commercialization of genomics. Uh, the, la the world's last trillion dollar industry was created out of uh, computer code. The world's next trillion dollar industry, I think, is going to be created out of genetic code. Where I think finally, 15 or so years after the mapping, uh, the mapping of the human genome, we're finally at the point where we're able to do some fairly fascinating things, both with diagnostics as well as with precision medicines, to, that I think will ultimately end up adding three to five years of life expectancy to, you know, I'm 44 years old. I think people my age will get three to five years of added expected life expectancy. And for my kids, I expect it'll be five to 10. Um, because of some of the truly spectacular things that are happening. But the interesting thing is that the commercialization of it is taking place because of costs and because of the way that we finance healthcare in this country, um, initially for the very wealthiest. So raise your hand if you've ever heard of a liquid biopsy. There are th three hands up. If all of you were billionaires, all of your hands would be up. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by a liquid biopsy. I play racquetball, and there's this guy who I've seen at the racquetball courts and gotten to know a little bit. I thought he was sort of a gym rat, sort of scraggly, crazy gray hair, big old beard, wears a knee brace on the outside of his 1970s style gray sweatpants, you know, carts his racquetball gear to the, to the court in an old dingy Samsonite suitcase. Turns out this guy is the world's most cited living scientist. Name's Bert Vogelstein, he, and he is, it was his team at Johns Hopkins that determined 30-some-odd years ago how mutations in proteins cause cancer. Kind of a big deal. Um, what his team has developed recently is this thing that three of you have heard of called a liquid biopsy, where when I go in for my annual checkup, I get, a, I get, a, I get blood taken, and the doctor tells me, you know, what my cholesterol level is, whether I got an STD. Um, and... And, uh, and what's interesting now is that what Dr. Vogelstein's team has developed at Johns Hopkins can, can, by looking at the genetic material in that blood, it can detect cancerous cells at 1 100th the size of what can be detected in an MRI. So that cancers that are routinely diagnosed in stages three and four can be diagnosed early in stage one. Right now, this costs three or $4,000. So when I asked, you know, when I said, if you all were billionaires, all of your hands would go up, everybody I know who's a billionaire, they all, in their annual checks, I've asked them, I'm like, do you get liquid biopsies? And they all say yes. Because they, for them, $4,000 added to the bill is no big deal. And so what's interesting is the ability to detect cancer very early now is domiciled with the very wealthy. Um, and until it becomes cost-effective enough to basically be wrapped into the costs of our annual exams, it won't mainstream. Um, just so people understand why I mentioned blueberry billionaires, this goes to an so The blueberry billionaires is, is I, I have this theory that you can tell how much somebody's worth by what they eat for breakfast. Um, the, the guys that I worked with on the midnight shift, you know, we, you know, they would eat, you know, just big old piles of potatoes and sausages and runny eggs and all this stuff. And, you know, since that's from whence I can't come, 
I was sitting down with somebody who will go unnamed who's extremely wealthy. And, you know, we were at a fancy restaurant and, and I ordered, you know, basically the Four Seasons version of that, which is, you know, potatoes and eggs and, and bacon. And Mr. Billionaire sort of looks up at the, uh, looks up at the waiter and goes, blueberries. <laughs> antioxidants. Eat your antioxidants, folks. Um, so there's a whole other set of technologies that you bundle under the codification of things, the codification of money, the codification of markets. Uh, you talk about Bitcoin and blockchain. You talk about the sharing economy. Can you sort of like expand on that basic concept? And then maybe we can talk about how the startup community is is uh, working with those concepts. I'll, I'll speak briefly about that because bluntly, even though I wrote a book about it, I think Rachel knows a lot more about this than I do. Um, there's There are a variety of different industries that have been digitized over the last 20 years. And this is a sophisticated enough audience that I don't need to itemize them for you. You know, from advertising to businesses that are rooted in persuasion models or recommendation models to, you know, whatever analytics can attach to uh, rooted in persuasion or publication, you know, those are among the, the great many industries that have been transformed over the last 20 years by digitization. But there are many more that I believe are to come. Uh, you know, I think about my father. And my father is a country lawyer in Hurricane, West Virginia. I love my father. Uh, but as a practical matter, what he did for 45 years was he created a tall stack of papers that you would spend half an hour signing uh, when you would either buy a house or sell a house. And it cost thousands of dollars and, you know, it would take months to get the house closing. And this is what he did for 40 some odd years. It was mild, it was cognitive, it was mildly cognitive, but it was repetitive. Uh, and I think that the legal industry, for example, the kind of work that my father did for 40 some odd years, basically creating that stack of paper, uh, is the kind of industry that is ripe for the next wave of disruption. And of course, if you think about government, you know, government uh, being able to take friction out of all of our interactions with government, uh, you know, I think that that, for example, is it's gotten started and it's gotten started in places like New York, but I think that the way in which we deliver government services, information, transactions, and other such things will be unrecognizable five to seven years what they are today. I'm happy to <laughs> pick up on that note since for the past five years I've focused on how do we remove a lot of that fr friction. And I think it's a fascinating topic. It's it We really are just at the beginning. You see some great examples in cities, lots of cities around, around the country, um, you know, experiments in New York, but also in Boston and in Los Angeles. And at the White House with the U.S. Digital Service, which is fantastic and basically setting a tone along the lines of what you see in the private sector of this is the new standard of how people expect to get information online. And this is how people are communicating and this is how people are learning things. And if, if the government is not engaging on these platforms, it, it is failing to serve everyone. It is failing to do its job. So I think the, the main focus of and sort of the the dream of that is to make it user-centric which is a term that's thrown around a lot in the startup world uh, but 
that premise is really at the core of a lot of industries um, being disrupted, whether it's financial services or health, uh, education, transportation. A lot of these have evolved over time, perhaps to favor the incumbents, perhaps to, um, to make it easier for the people who are performing the services to do their own jobs, when in reality, there's so much work that needs to be done to, to instead of structuring, for example, a government website around how government itself is structured, why don't we ask the average person how they would expect to look for something or ask a question or pay a parking ticket if they were trying to go online? And anyone who's been on a government website, I see some people laughing and nodding their heads. Um, and I think that that's really what it comes down to. But there's, there's enormous... Um, challenges to this, a lot of which Alec talks about in his book, um, so I won't get into it too much um, because because I, I, I really like the way that he puts it, um, but everything from the way that government buys technology to the way that government hires people and once it has hired people, especially in technology, um, how they continue to do their jobs and build their skills and, and what they do within government, um, that all plays a role in terms of how, you know, how the technology is made and how those how those services end up coming to the public. It also creates a lot of interesting, as you were talking about cybersecurity, I was thinking that it's it's really just gonna get a little bit worse for a while because there's so much more digitization that needs to happen to government services. Right now, there's still a lot that's in paper and you can't hack that yet and you can't you know steal that data. So what happens as it changes? So I think there's concerns around security, there's concerns around doing things in a different way but the tide is obviously changing. Everyone knows that this is what the public wants. And the more that we can, for example, let someone, if you're, in, if you're a New Yorker, take a picture of a pothole with your iPhone and, and detect a GPS location and have 311 fix it, um, the more that you can contest your parking ticket online, which you can do, and 50% of the time it is successful. <laughs> just so that you know, um, that's, we know that that's what, those are the types of things that, that the public is, is looking for. I will tell one funny story as an aside to this that I didn't put in my book because I didn't want to tell sort of government stories in it. But one thing that I hope you would appreciate, Rachel, is I, I, when I was running tech, media, and telecom policy for the Obama campaign in 07 and 08, uh, then Senator Obama had sort of the big rollout of his tech and innovation agenda at the Googleplex. It was August of 2007. And I remember, you know, the speech was written and he was in the car going from some rich guy's house in Marin County uh, to the Googleplex. And I, and I get a phone call and it's, it's patched in. It's from then Senator Obama. And he's like, Alec, you know, speech looks really good. You know, really pleased. You know, think we're doing the right thing here. I just have one question for you. What's a machine-readable format? As we launch that, he now knows what a machine-readable format is for to facilitate Small open victories, government. Small victories, man. Small it was, victories. It was pretty funny. Uh, although I'd love to stick on the sharing economy for a bit, uh, I'm also mindful of time, so I figure we should move on to another uh, another industry. We talked about cybersecurity. Uh, after that, you talk about big data, data analytics, um, and the way it's revolutionizing a variety of fields. Um, talk a little bit about that, and I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about the implications for privacy uh, of big data, especially when you com combine it with that whole cybersecurity problem. Um, so we now li we live in a world right now of an estimated 16 billion internet-connected devices. So between our phones, our computers, our 
and our sensors. There are 16 billion devices out there that are internet connected, that are networked. By 2020, which is not that long from now, it's four years from now, that number, some project will be 40 billion. So we're going to go from 16 billion to 40 billion in four years. That's a rather dramatic increase. And we now live in the age of the zettabyte. Uh, so I don't know how current my data is, but I think last year maybe uh, we produced about five. We 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 lived in a world of five zettabytes of data, which is a zettabyte is ten to the twenty-first power bytes of data. And so we we're really living in with it, we're creating a Pacific Ocean worth of data, and how we draw meaning out of that I think will be the foundation for industries of the future. I think that land was the raw material of the agricultural age. Iron was the raw material of the industrial age. And data is the raw material of the information age. He who owned the land, controlled the land during the agricultural age had the economic power and the political power. He who owned the factories and controlled access to the natural resources during the industrial age had the economic power and had the political power. He or she who own the data, control the data, or can interpret the data in the information age are those with the economic power and the political power. And so what's really interesting for me is I think about analytics. I think about those industries that we might think of as 20th century industries or industrial age industries and, and thinking about how they can be rev revitalized with analytics. And so one area that I focus a lot on in the book is agriculture. You know, we live in a world of 7.2 billion people. That number is gonna quickly grow to, to 9 billion. Uh, so our population is going from 7.2 billion to 9 billion at a time where water is growing, is becoming a more scarce resource. We know we're not gonna produce more land. Uh, so what we have to do is we actually have to produce 80% more food lest the world grow hungrier. And what's interesting, and through my research, what I've come to believe is that the best hope for feeding a world of 9 billion people is through precision agriculture, basically the application of a variety of different kinds of technologies plus analytics to take uh, an industry that we associate with, you know, as being inherently yesterday um, to something that is more futuristic and produces significantly higher yields at lower costs with increased levels of nutrition. So that what's really, what excites me about the big data revolution, the analytics revolution, is the ability to produce more with less for things that address sort of chronic human problems or chronic human challenges like hunger. What are the novel uses you're seeing of big data in the startup community or, or at the city, city level? I think it's it's almost infinite. It's in some ways the data seems to run across every perhaps every industry of the future and is almost the building block of how of how these industries are being transformed and it was really interesting to hear. So for example, at 1776 we accelerate innovation in startups and corporations in core industries that affect essential human needs, which also happen to be heavily regulated industries. So energy, education, transportation, security, smart cities, food and agriculture, and data is a huge component. And 
for example, when we look at our investments, if there's not a strong data strategy, we won't consider the investment because it's a huge, it's a huge um, missed opportunity. When it comes to government and when it comes to uh, sort of smart, uh, not necessarily smart cities, but big data startups, uh, predictive analytics startups, there is so much potential. What's interesting is that when it comes to government data, no one owns the data. So it's the person who can interpret it that is the most powerful and who adds the most value. So it's it's free for the taking, but we learned a few different lessons in government. And I do still see a lot of big red flags when it comes to data and government. Things like the fact that, and this is probably true of the private, it is true of the private sector as well, is government to government, city to city, state to state, and then local up to the national level, everyone's collecting data and publishing data in completely different ways and formats. There's not a lot of standardization, which makes this brave new world the sort or the positive potential of data a lot further away. And it's also one of these challenges that's just going to get worse because if we don't solve it now, it's we're going to have so many different formats and so many different uh, taxonomies and nomenclatures. Um, I think um, some of the the other uh, sort of exciting stuff that we've seen is in predictive analytics. So you have companies like Palantir that are doing incredible things with data, and they really know how to interpret data, and they're helping both governments and, and private companies do that. Um, at the city, we had a really cool example of the city's um, Office of Data Analytics, where they used data that was all publicly available, um, but they just brought it together in ways that hadn't happened before. This was our, our chief data analytics officer, Mike Flowers. I don't know if any folks are uh, familiar with him here. Um, one, of, one of my favorite people, um, because he's both brilliant and great, great personality and character. But what he was able to do, also because of both his character and his intellect, was convince the NYPD, the fire department, the Department of Buildings, lots of different agencies, not necessarily always sharing a lot of data, although very committed and passionate about what they do, to share their data with him. And at the end of the day, what he was able to do was they were able to predict um, locations in the city that had a high, higher um, probability of casualties from fires. And they did this by bringing together um, uh, information on tax liens, information on where there were um, multiple, uh, multiple individuals living together sort of beyond fire code. And that usually suggested it was perhaps an illegal dwelling, like a single occupancy dwelling, all kinds of city, city terms. Um, they, would, they would add that with the, when the most recent um, inspection was by the fire department. And at the end, you have you have the opportunity to to save lives, and I think they did actually reduce casualties in the years that followed by targeting their inspections to those locations. So, so data can save lives, but the getting the data, analyzing the data, is enormously difficult, and it, it probably still will be for a while. Your mention of mapping fire risk reminds me of mapping of criminal risk, uh, which is one of the uh, sort of touch points for debates about predictive analytics and bias and discrimination and how, uh, depending on how you handle it, the wrong data or even the right data can end up reinforcing uh, bias or discrimination. So the very simplistic version of this is if you see a lot of crime in an area and that drives a lot more police to go to that area to police it, that leads to more arrests, which leads to mapping more crime, which leads to more, and then you end up having a very over-policed pop population on one hand and under-policed one on the other. I really appreciated your raising this issue in, in your book. I was wondering if you had more to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I, what I would simply say is that I think a lot of the time we assume that our algorithms are developed by divine beings. Uh, they're not. 
they're built by humans. And I think they, as we develop powerful analytics, we need to always keep our human judgments and understand exactly what we're querying and how we're applying it. And so, for example, with predictive analytics, one concern I have goes to things like HR functions. So if one of the things that you are if, if, if one of the things that you are looking for when you're hiring people is existing social connections to people who are within the workforce, then what that's doing is it's inherently uh, working against uh, people from social networks that are not dominant, that are not in your workplace. But because it's come from this noiseless algorithm, suddenly the HR person has, 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 is able to sort of divorce themselves from any culpability for bias. Uh, so, so that does worry me a little bit. What I, what I think we have to do is just be mindful of, mindful of the fact that most predictive analytics still run off of structured data sets that are inherently regressive, and it's not value neutral. And so you've got to understand when you are building sort of your action plans or your responses to the content that's coming back to you. It's to understand with open eyes and with three dimensions what the implications of that are. Now, I do think, you know, again, I am, I am, I am net positive on, on the development and application of these kinds of tools, but is never forgetting, never forgetting the kinds of bias that is baked in uh, to what you're developing here and, and which you really have to be very careful about. Um, in the interest of time, I'm not going to ask you about privacy other than to throw out another analogy, just as it may be a raw material, data can also be likened to pollution in some cases. It gets out there, it leaks into places you don't necessarily want it to leak, it can cause unanticipated damage, that sort of thing. Uh, and I would encourage folks to ask questions about privacy if, if I will you want say to. one thing about that, though. I mean, I do, one thing I write about pretty at some depth in the book is what I consider to be the future of privacy. And this, the short version of it is I think there's going to be less. Um, I do think that it's, it's very interesting. There are trade-offs. When we give up information, we are, we are, there are trade-offs. And one story I tell in the book is about an app called good to go and good to go is an app where it was it was built with good intentions it was built you know focusing on the problem that had been taking place that has taken place in american universities with uh, sexual assault and the idea is that using this app you can practice affirmative consent you are sort of recording you are memorializing that you are willingly going to have sex the interesting thing about this app, though, is if you actually get into the terms of service, they have the right to sell the data. And so what that means is it could say, all right, well, Hanna Zupko in 2015 practiced affirmative consent five times. She did so at these bars and these restaurants. She did so at these times. And there's an extension on, there's a little extension that you can put on your smartphone. It's actually a breathalyzer. So it can actually say, oh yes, you know, Hanna Zupko on October 17th at 11.14 p.m. at Pete's Bar affir practiced affirmative consent with a blood alcohol level of 0.07. And so what's interesting about this, among the many things that are interesting about this, 
is, is that the ability to actually contain this kind of information is, is relatively minimal. And so if you think about the hacks of Ashley Madison, if you think about, you know, the leaking and compromising of information everywhere, what I think is going to increasingly be the case is that we're all going to have a scandal. Uh, I think that in a world of greater transparency and less privacy, I think that norms are going to shift. And so, you know, I think about drugs and presidents, for example. So when Bill Clinton was running for president in 1992, it was like a big issue. Did he inhale? Big deal. Am I going to vote for him? Am I going to not vote for him? Did he inhale? Did he not inhale? Fast forward 16 years, Barack Obama's like, oh, I inhaled. <laughs> I inhaled a lot. I liked it, and I also did coke. Non-issue in the campaign. What happened? Norms shifted. And so I do think that as we all leave these digital fingerprints everywhere, I do think that with all, so much more transparency about the lives that we live and our fallibility being open to public view, to a greater extent than ever has been the case, ever has been the case in the past, I have a feeling that norms are going to shift in some really interesting ways. So I think the sociology of digitization in this respect is going to be really interesting. Well, I guess how that data about your peccadillos is received or used against you or not may turn somewhat on whether you live in a fairly open or a fairly closed society, which takes us uh, to your final chapter. Um, where you talk about advice for people who said the thing you heard most throughout your travels, which was, we want to build our own Silicon Valley. And you had some particular ideas about, well, one, you probably can't do that. But two, if you, if you want something close to it, here are some ideas to maximize that. And I expect that's something you have some thoughts on as well. How can a, how can a city maximize its chances of actually being a hub for innovation? Yes, yeah, so if you think about what today's billion-dollar industries are that are going to be tomorrow's trillion-dollar industries, you know, as I've traveled around the world and my, my assistant re recently did me the disservice of actually totaling up that travel, and apparently in the last handful of years, it's the equivalent of 25 circumferences of the globe, two round trips to the moon with a side trip to New Zealand. And everywhere I go, I hear the exact, it doesn't matter what country I'm in, I hear the exact same thing. They say, we want to create our own Silicon Valley. Um, and getting beyond the, the reasons why that is inadvisable and impossible, um, what is true is that cities, and I think the organizing unit is really more a metropolitan area and a region than a nation state, that the nation state still does matter. There are a variety of different conditions that I think are necessary to compete and succeed in the industries of the future. And to reduce it to sort of a simple binary, I think the principal political binary of the 20th century was left versus right. The political left versus the political right. I think in the 21st century, it's open versus closed. And unlike the, unlike the binary of left and right in the 20th century, I think that there's a much broader spectrum here. There are no perfectly open societies and there are no perfectly closed societies. The closest to either, I think, is probably North Korea. Um, and so I do think that those states and societies that are most open, that allow for creativity, that are respectful of minority rights, you know, across all types, that do the most to systematically advantage women at all levels of the economy. These are the states and societies that I believe are going to be the most innovative and are going to be the headquarters for the industries of the future.
I, I think it's fascinating. When I, so, um, especially when I was at the city of New York as the chief digital officer, I can't even tell you how many cities on a weekly basis we would hear from dozens and dozens of cities. And we're, you know, we're, we're not Silicon Valley, we're different. And they were saying, how can we do what you've done? We mounted a, a strong initiative to support tech growth in New York City, although a lot of that was just shining a light on what was happening in the tech sector in New York City because we have so many large industries in New York City that are incredibly powerful that sometimes it was hard to see what was happening in tech and it had sort of uh, sort of snuck up over time and, and it was actually incredibly impressive. But I think the number one thing, as Alec was saying, is don't try to be Silicon Valley. And I wouldn't say that just because I was a proud, biased New Yorker. And I thought, well, why would we want to be some, some other city? Um, but because there's not one path to innovation and there's not one path to commercial success. And what behooves each city is look at what's really unique about your own city. So when you look at New York, we see enormous leadership and growth in um, in sectors that are evolving that have historically been strong here from fashion, e-commerce, media, ad tech. Um, that was sort of the underpinnings of the first big wave of, of, the, uh, of the internet here. Um, and now we're seeing New York emerging as uh, a leader in advanced manufacturing, 3D manufacturing, digital manufacturing. We're seeing a lot happening in, in financial technologies and fintech and increasingly a lot of investment around smart cities and health. So so go to where your strengths are. New York City, our strengths, and I'm always excited to talk about our strengths, but it's it's bringing together those large, um, those legacy industries that are incredibly powerful that are all interested in innovating because they see the future coming um, and and finding a path forward that helps to create, to create more value. Um, and then I think it just speaks to the nature of cities as magnets for talent, magnets for capital, and just engines for efficiency. And, and when you have those things combined, you, you have really exciting outcomes. But, you know, go, go to what's true to your own city um, and your own legacy. And, and I think that's the path forward. Uh, I want to thank Alec for being here, Rachel for being here. I'd like to thank Civic Hall for partnering with my organization, New America's Open Technology Institute, to co-sponsor this event. And I'd like to thank you all for being here. Please enjoy the wine and buy a book. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.